and welcome to the Light Plus podcast from Lighthouse. My name's Eva Rosen and I'm the curator in residence at Lighthouse between January and July 2019. This series of Light Plus is part of a programme of projects and events called Who's Doing the Washing Up and Where's the Sink? I'll be talking to artists, users, workers and collaborators whom I've been working with about the role of hospitality in arts organisations and specifically at Lighthouse. In this podcast, I'll be talking to artists Anton Katz and Maya Erstad about their collaborative project Maku. In their art and music practices, Maya and Anton share an interest in radio technology and transmission, and in particular how different forms and uses of radio can propose collaborative ways of communicating, organising and listening. Maya and Anton started working together for the first time in 2018 at Bergen Kunsthal in Bergen, which is on the west coast of Norway. In Bergen, they met and recorded conversations with retired seafarers and members of Bergen Kringkaster, the Bergen Association of Broadcasting, about their uses of radio technology and how it's changed. Now at Lighthouse, Anton and Maya are developing their collaboration in the context of Brighton. During their residency here, they've been meeting groups in the city who are using radio in different ways, including local amateur radio societies and the youth-led radio station Platform B. In this podcast, we'll talk about their collaboration and as new forms of technology open up and others become obsolete, how the possibilities to communicate and listen are changing and expanding. Welcome, Maya. Thank you very much. And Anton. Thank you. Great being here. And this is the second podcast in this Who's Doing the Washing Up program, which is continued at Lighthouse from Bergen Kunsthal. I brought you both together last year and neither of you had met before, but I knew of your individual practices and how you both share an interest in working with radio technology and how it's used as a tool to communicate, to listen, to record and as a way of bringing people together. And something inside me told me that you both needed to meet and you both needed to share your interests and your ways of working. So in my uh, blind date curatorial approach, I invited you both to come to Bergen Kunsthal and spend five days working together and to see where your practices could sort of intersect or connect and where they differed and what you could find in the context of Bergen, which is going through an interesting period in its radio life as FM gets shut down and, and more things or everything is moving over to digital. So I wondered maybe if you could both start by talking just a bit about your individual practices. So my approach to radio is as a sound installation artist or a sound artist. And I've been interested in the radio for many, many years. Both the signal, which I find very interesting and very beautiful and changing all the time. The object, the radio, like the kitchen radio or the portable radio has also been an object that I've been working with for a long time also finding it very interesting because it's changing. So it's it's all these traces of history. It's a kind of an evidence of the technological changes over time. It also follows some kind of a biography for me because I've been having all these radios up over the time and listening, using it, and eventually also being very interested in how how we send and receive signals and how these signals are being converted on the way from 
It could even be Skype, but it's something about this conversion and imagining how these signals are moving from a personal voice out in the space or through some zero-one codes and back to the other side of the world or maybe back to the neighbor. And I find these transmissions really intriguing. So I use them in my installations. When I started working earlier, people threw away their radios or the portable radios because they wanted new. And this is also some possibility for me as an artist to pick them up and start making structures or constructions with them and using them as a comment on the way we throw a thing away or the way we get ruins out of things that's actually highly usable. And this applies to the signal as well. It's changing, it's disappearing, but it also means a lot for us because I think it's a part of our memory, how these different signals, even if we don't like radio, but it's there. You will hear it, you will hear the time pips, and you will hear some voices that you recognize over and over again. You hear the weather forecasts. So I think these things are getting into our memory somehow and are quite important that it's a kind of a neglected soundscape that I find interesting to pick up. Also saying that like a biographical element is also quite formative for my practice in the sense that my practice goes all the way back to my childhood in South Ukraine, or not just childhood, adolescence. And that was strongly influenced by my grandfather, who was a Second World War radio operator. And as I was growing up in the 90s, I was a teenager. On the one hand, I was always like surrounded by the stories of my grandfather, who would speak about radio not as a kind of entertainment device, but much more as a strategic tool, like something you use in combat to plan action, to fight fascism, you know, to kind of engage in direct action and struggle. And on the other hand, also things that were coming in the 90s, at least in the South Ukraine, in the city called Kherson, where I'm from, things that were coming through the radio were also not too exciting. I mean, after the collapse of the Soviet, there was like a series of military conflicts in the 90s, Georgia, Abkhazia, Tajikistan, three Chechen wars. I mean, many, many things that were actually quite scary, you know, in a sense, also with Ukraine being just becoming independent and being surrounded, more or less surrounded by these conflicts. So, and then what comes to it as well is that my grandfather, the older he grew, the louder the radio became because he was just more and more deaf. So I kind of grew up with this very natural aversion to traditional radio broadcast. And then, long story short, as it happened, um, I left to Europe. And my journey in Europe has started in an asylum accommodation that also had to do much more with a kind of pragmatic, not to romanticize it, kind of struggle elements of self-legalizing and things like that. So once my artistic practice started developing, from teenage years I've been playing in bands, so I was always interested for literature and films and things like that. I think what I still kind of learned to be doing is to combine on the one hand like a very pragmatic, like down-to-earth, everyday kind of approach to politics, you know, like everyday politics, kind of a sense of figuring out like a current chaotic situation and creating a response to it. And on the other hand, how this figuring can, as you nicely pointed out, once provoke or contribute or influence like an aesthetic or an artistic form that is, there is no, uh, not necessarily like a kind of hierarchical relationship between the two, but how the pragmatic and the aesthetic parts coincide, you know. And I think radio for me gives, like if I just 
just rewind and distill, I think this question of transmission is for me kind of always a point of departure because at the core, even before I start thinking technology, I'm thinking of transmission as a question of agency, who transmits what to who, by what means is it transmitted, why is it being transmitted, and so on and so on and so on. So that's for me is usually a point of departure for an artistic project. And then within of that, usually it always relates to a site. I very often work with this concept I call radio narrowcast. I didn't coin this term. It actually comes from a radio technology. But I'm thinking about this quite a lot in the sense of how one contextualizes or uses a radio studio. And classically, we think of a radio studio like something where we're sitting right now is a closed room that is quite, I mean, it's accessible if we are invited or like someone has a particular form of permission. But rather than that, it's quite isolated and it has a whole you know, amount of protocols of how we listen, whether we edit, how we transmit, is it one to many or many to many, is there an ability to respond and so on. So in my practice, very often I develop radio studios in public space that can take form of installations, listening sites, interventions like sometimes concerts or listening sessions. It can provoke kind of work with sculptures or sound objects, production of publications, things like that. So I think in that sense, I kind of try to always respond to a particular site or to a particular struggle, issue, situation at stake, and then to see what kind of form collaboratively could be developed in order to also create like an you know, artistic gesture or respond to it artistically. I think um, come back or start with those questions of who are we transmitting to, who for, for what purpose and with what means. And the grant under which you're both brought together is asking the 10 organisations that are part of this European grant, which has the title of Reimagine Europe, how to reimagine the ways that we're working in our organisations, the technology that we're using, the tools that we have to reach different audiences and develop the ways that we communicate with those audiences. And the idea of this question which has followed through the residency at Lighthouse and at Bergen Kunsthal of who's doing the washing up is to ask that question very practically as someone who's always worked in bars and always taking care of who's doing the washing up but also to use it as a question to point to those questions of who for who gets to design this technology who gets to use it whose voices are present when we're reimagining our organizations and Europe and the world and how do we make space to listen to those voices rather than just assuming that we as the people in charge and the organizations know what the people outside want. So I think when I was trying to find a way to respond to these questions and thinking about bringing you both together the way that you think about radio as a way to respond to a site and ask those questions of who is it for, for what purpose are we transmitting but also thinking about the technology and how in reimagining countries, organizations, processes, there's always a sort of look to making new and actually like maintaining is an area where a lot of work happens. And so what can you learn from a technology which is at the point of about to become obsolete or break and how can that be taken forward? I'm thinking now what we, we have been doing in the these two residences that we have been talking with people doing radio in different ways. Here, we had this very nice night with Platform B. Yeah, Platform B, exactly. And uh, Mid-Sussex Amateur Radio Society. And that has been one of my very big interests continuously, is how to share this knowledge on the cross between younger and older 
persons and also the different approaches to radio and technology. And I think there's a lot to learn because, for instance, for this evening, it was really interesting to see the energy of the Platform B and the approach, which ha- has a lot to do with content and music and the scene right now, while the amateur society is working in a completely different way, but actually is the foundation of what Platform B can do today. And I find these long lines very important and incredibly important that we don't forget that actually the radio amateur technology is the like the platform for us and keep remembering these changes over time. Yeah, and I think also what kind of brings the two together for me from this evening is also this notion of urgency, you know, like because of radio to be sought as a kind of something that forms networks, then obviously these networks are not only technological but also social. And like, for instance, Platform B, like what really strikes me is that kind of the urgency it approaches is also like this inaudibility of like young voices, no? So it kind of responds also to a particular lack of amplification, no? If you like. And with radio amateurs, what we also often forget, because I don't really think that radio is a kind of obsolete medium. I think it's still, funnily enough, the most widespread medium in the world. You know, in Europe, we think everyone has internet, but it's not really the case. Also, it's kind of a medium that comes like immediately to you once, you know, let's say in best case, there is bad weather, you know, so everything is just not working. There is no internet, like satellites or phones are overloaded or something like that. But on the other hand, also like political urgency it can be cultural, like platform B, but can be also like a, you know, coup d'etat as it is. Once one go out, out of Europe a little bit further, it kind of happens a little bit more frequently. And then things that, you know, get occupied first is the TV station and the radio station. And they actually like this notion of radio amateur, there's kind of a power flip. You no, know? all of a sudden you become at the core of communication and transmission of like life relevant existential kind of messages you know yeah we learned that when we were in bergen too and speaking with the amateur radio bergen Kringkaster, that one of their missions for running this club or this place is to maintain a, an emergency net so they have exercises they go out to make sure that all the antennas and every all the equipment is working in case of emergency and they of course they hope they don't have to use it but because this technology is more accessible yeah and possible to run it's really important that this is actually it's not only a social club it's quite important it's not just a hobby basically no No, it has kind of like a very particular application as well Mm. thinking about this word obsolete could you say a bit Maya about Norway and the move to shut down FM, which is not something that is happening in action in the UK and what that means for like the landscape of the airwaves. Yeah, it's uh, the Norwegian broadcast has converted to dub plus, which means that they don't exist on FM ban anymore. It also is several of the commercial channels who's on the dub plus and the FM is quite a spooky and ghosty medium at the moment. It's a lot of empty stations, it's a lot of silence, and, and there's a got lot of interference, but very few stations. And it depends where you are. Some, some of the cities have more than the others, but it's still a lot of empty space. There isn't really a lot of people or a lot of institutions occupying that space yet, which I really hope 
is a possibility because it's empty and it's there. And the technology is still there. Mm. And also I think in regards to listening and organizing, no? Because in a way radio also creates these networks that are very human networks, no? And very often when we listen to radio or like we organize some, uh, you know, whatever, student uprising or like whatever it is, radio appears from a network of people as well. So it materializes through that. And it's very interesting, I think, and important to also think of listening in this kind of very material dimension, no? Because very often we think listening is just an act of discovery, you know, we listen to that, now we know more, or think something particular, but uh, not that it just also leads to action, but one materializes what one has heard, no? So radio and listening has this kind of, yeah, very particular ability to manifest things, I believe at least, or I witness to an extent. So that's also like very particular kind of point of departure for developing an artistic project as well. And I think coming back to Bergen, for us, for instance, once we entered in uh, Bergen Kunsthal, it was also a very interesting point of departure to see how the project materializes, no? because, of course, we can spend time, and which we very often do, no? just by having conversation or walking around. But I think in the beginning, this way, exactly the question you're raising is, okay, how do we also deal with this privilege of being in this space? You know, what kind of infrastructure does it provide? You know, how can we not even just deconstruct it and provide access to others, but like how do we work through that? Do we parasite on it, you know, and just shoot nice pictures of our work? So do we create like a space in which we invite others and like what form should it take? And I think that for me was a very interesting moment to actually start working together as well, because before that, for me it was because we uh, even maybe know each other for a while and most of my projects work through intuition, you know, like I not often apply for things. And, but when things like this come, I, I'm very trustful. So we met with Maya on uh, Eva's suggestion in Berlin and it was a very nice meeting. We exchanged, we realized we are both bass players, you know, that for me actually it's very, very, very important. Bass players of all worlds unite. Anyways, but then like actually being in Bergen then at some point, that was okay, hands on, what do we do, no? And... I think we actually started by just opening it up and also using this opening to not just to install things from top to down, but actually to problematize exactly the questions or like things that we find, you know, in art institutions and like in institutions of privilege, you know, to an extent. And to see how from there we can, you know, make it maybe a little bit more useful and how can we not just, yeah, discuss these questions, but also how can we listen and use this listening in exactly this kind of material applied manner. Working together, how? I mean, both have a very strong trust in Eva because she's a very good curator and she has a very good intuition. <laughs> so that was not a, that was not an issue at all to doubt or wonder about mm. that. But it was very exciting also because we are quite both different and have uh, both outputs and inputs for the work we do. But there is also a lot of correlating interests and I thought that was also very exciting to like try to find where these connecting points are, yeah. which was also a lot about listening and talking and sending and receiving. And we've also been doing a lot of listening this time, which is really nice, checking out what's around us. Could you say something about the idea of conditions? Because it's something that in the different meetings that you've had with different people using radio and the event that we hosted at Lighthouse, which brought together the Amateur Radio Society and Platform B and your practices, 
the idea of conditions being perfect to receive other communications or not perfect. Yeah, yeah. One of the basics is when radio operators communicate, as I have understood, I'm not an operator myself, but is that if they connect, they tell about the quality of the conversation through numbers. So this is part of the conditions. And what what we also was talking about was that actually, but there needs to be the conditions to at all get that connection. Mm. So without the condition or with the wrong condition of, for instance, bad weather, a lot of disturbance, or it could be some some uh, some things in the ionosphere or some solar... Yeah, electricity, uh, light bulbs, phones, and then solar peaks, you know, for 10 years, or like solar law and yeah. all kind of in, yeah, impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and which, which could also mean that there is no connection. So there's, yeah, the conditions are not operable or you cannot get this contact. It's kind of very interesting, um, yeah, cutting edge where, like, yeah, radio kind of connects also to the ecological condition to an extent, no, and also like a different sort of pollution that is like electronic, you know. And that's, I think, also like in terms of technology, it has a very interesting sweet spot, no, like it's very close to nature, no, like it really works like through ionospheres, and like it's a very interesting way to look at the, you know, laws of physics and nature and meteorology. And it's relatively accessible, so it's not that hard to make on radio, like much simpler than make on internet, mm. let's, say, let's say like this. And yeah, indeed, it's not that it even becomes obsolete, but it's more and more that the conditions, you know, the kind of the amount of pollution and also the amount of waves and noises that we actually walk through, you know, our bodies being antennas without actually noticing it is so immense that um, like kind of a very basic connection is not um, very well possible anymore. Mm. And for me, literally and metaphorically, it's kind of a very, also a very interesting moment to think of conditions that are also political and social and also to think in how far media, you know, I generalize, of course, it's a very charged, uh, loaded word, but in how far, like also this amount of technology that apparently is there to connect actually creates condition of disconnection, no, mm. and kind of of you know, falling apart to an extent. And the radio also allows to pose these questions in a kind of collective manner, which I uh, really appreciate. Thinking about conditions and how they are not always perfect for making a connection or for receiving a communication or for listening, and how so much of the grants that I have to deal with in these roles and institutions are all about communicating and making a connection with audiences, with groups outside of our institution. But the kind of turnaround for the results on those communications is so quick it has to be like reported on straight after the event the grant is for a set time and then you have to report on it often to get the funding afterwards and so the conditions always have to be perfect and it puts this pressure on the conditions of communicating with audiences or people who are coming to things in our institutions it puts the pressure on that so much that if it doesn't work and no one's responding it's a failure and it was for me it was really interesting hearing much more about how the conditions are not always right but you kind of keep going back and you believe that there will be a connection and you find a way to make that but it will take time and it will take adjustments and it will take listening to to wait for the right conditions okay thank you so much Maya and thank you Anton for taking part in this experimental collaboration 
Thank and, you. And thank you for inviting us. In the next episode, Spanish artist and educator Jordi Ferrero will be talking to artist Andre Franke about his week-long takeover of Lighthouse, why they both prefer lunchtime chats to panel discussions, and their shared interest in investigating and disrupting how things happen in organisations. Thanks so much for listening to this Light Plus podcast. If you want to find out more about this event or who's doing the washing up and where's the sink, then head to lighthouse.org.uk. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us, either on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps other people to find us too. Who's doing the washing up and where's the sink is part of Reimagine Europe, a collaboration between Lighthouse and nine other organisations across Europe, co-funded by the Creative Europe Programme of the European Union.